Look at my butt. Show number 273 of Look at His Butt, LT and JK Talk Trek. Well, hello, fellow quarantinos, if you're still quarantining, which we are. Yes, listeners, thank you for staying safe, staying healthy, staying home and watching Star Trek. And of course, washing your hands every 30 seconds as it has been <laughs> mandated by law at this point. Yes, so. yes. <laughs> well, here we are back with some more Trek stuff to keep you amused. Um, the very first thing we want to say is, as we uh, threatened, I think, in our last episode, <laughs> we're going to do a, a live watch along of the classic movie, Starring William Shatner, of course, Impulse, our favorite Shatner movie, I think. Favorite, favorite. Yes. And uh, we would like to do it on May 15th, which is a Friday. And the time we have chosen is 9 o'clock East Coast USA time, which means uh, 8 o'clock Chicago time and 6 o'clock California time. And we will be doing it via the magic of 2-7 dot xyz which we talked about before um Mm -hmm. so we'll be posting this on facebook we'll be doing it on twitter as well with the information as to where you can just click you don't have to create an account i don't think um and no i don't think you do yes and it's free it's totally free it's really good we'll be talking throughout maybe we'll um have some other folks uh chiming in with a, a few things but it's really just for us to sit together and and do the chat box and enjoy the craziness that is that movie so if you can drop by for a while to watch impulse with us we would love to to connect with you guys and if you have never seen it and you you, <laughs> you choose to watch it with us please let us know because um I would regard that as like a, a hmm, a uh, bucket list thing that mm-hmm. I have introduced someone to the wonders <laughs> of impulse. It's kind of like when you were a teenager and it was your first time going to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and <laughs> and like you you had you couldn't go by yourself, right? It wasn't no, there was no, no point no. in going on your own. <laughs> You had to have your friends go with you and sort of initiate right. you into the whole thing. Right. So, yeah. That's and tell you was. what to do, you know, mm-hmm. what to bring. and Right. Yep. All of that good stuff. So we hope we will get some impulse virgins. But if mm-hmm. not, that's okay. We're going to have a great time. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. So May 15th, as I said, we'll be posting info on the Facebook and on the Twitters. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, if you miss it somewhere, email us and we'll be happy to send you the information on it. It's going to be fun. Yes, we will have a great time. Yeah. Uh, So moving right along, um, speaking of people out there in the world, our good friend Maynard, who continues to have a podcast down in Australia where they are quarantining as well. He and his Mm -hmm. co-host, Tim Ferguson, spent a little time talking about, a little time, I will say like a minute and a half (laughs) talking Mm -hmm. about Picard. And um, he wanted to to say, hey, what do you guys think about this? So let's play you the clip right now and then we'll come back and we'll talk about what he says because it's pretty funny. For those of the sci-fi bent, are you a bit of a fan of Picard, aren't you? Ah, see. Uh Uh-oh. What's going to happen now? That's a touchy topic. Well, I'll finish the question because on a recent episode, they had Jerry Ryan, who was seven of nine, and they went undercover into a casino. And suddenly it turned into a bit of an episode of William Shatner's Barbary Coast. <laughs> he 
had the eye patch. Picard had the eye patch and was doing the outrageous French accent. So is this Barbary Coast William Shatner or is it Allo Allo in space? Because she had the trench coat on. I thought she was going to say, I will tell you this only once. I'm just waiting for that line of dialogue to come up. Listen very carefully. I shall say this only once. See, Jean-Luc Picard is about as funny as Gandalf. He's just not funny and he should stay away from it. The only problem I have with the Picard series is that it's got nothing to do with Star Trek at all. The universe has changed. The Federation of Planets is no longer acting like a Federation of Planets. The episodes go for a a long, meandering hour, and you have to spend the whole thing with Jean-Luc Picard in a bad mood. When he tries to be funny, that's when really you've just got to switch off. It's like your granddad saying, I'll tell you something funny that happened once. So it's a bit like the Quincy of the Star Trek franchise. off on its own there he's solving crimes every hour that's right who would have thought who would have thought so i have to say tim pretty much captured uh my feelings about the picard mm-hmm. show mm-hmm. because picard isn't any fun to be around at least mm-hmm. not to me mm-hmm. and it's the picard show so you're with him all the time. <laughs> in a bad mood. he's in mood. a bad mood. <laughs> so it's true. So, you know, well well done, Tim. Uh, he, he also um, made our mention, the one episode that I had talked about where they go down to Planet Las Vegas and they're all wearing these <laughs> ridiculous costumes. He said it's like Bill's Barbary Coast show. And I agree with that. Yes, <laughs> the yes. most ridiculous outfits and... and accents and everything so good call on that one as well um i will take issue with the fact that um tim said that picard is about as funny as gandalf Gandalf's (laughs) funny gandalf's very funny yeah in in a snarky sort of way yes exactly he's hilarious when when he he rides up to the um the circle of Isengard and he sees Pippin and Mary there. And instead of greeting him and saying, oh, nice to see you, he says, get up, you Tom fool of a toque. What are you doing? <laughs> Come on. That's funny. Well, I also like that they brought up um, this being the, the Quincy of Star Trek. Yes. Because you wanted it to be a crime solving show. Yes. Which it kind of is. It kind of right? is. It's true. <laughs> and yes, Picard driving around the galaxy in his van solving crimes, definitely. And um, I I love the, the Quincy comparison, for sure. Short-tempered mm-hmm. barking at people. Yep. Yep. That's good stuff. So, yeah, on the whole, I, I do take issue with him saying it has nothing to do with Star Trek, because it is Star Trek, you know? It, it But as he says, it's a different Star Trek. It's not the same Federation of Planets that we knew, because things have mm-hmm. changed. There were right. events. And, right. you know, nothing stays the same, and it's okay. It's okay that things have changed, but the, the optimism and the the desire for Picard to do the right thing is still there. And there are other people who agree with him and that Mm -hmm. comes through at the end that hasn't gone away. And that feeling that it is the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few, it's still there. I I see that in there. You know, now they're going insane where there's, everybody's going to have a a Star Trek, you know, Mm -hmm. every character is going to have a spinoff. And I really think one of them and not one of the, the children named ones really should be set in a time period where the Federation and Starfleet is not a mess and it's episodic. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're, they're going on these adventures and they're encountering new things. That's what Star Trek originally did was 
each week, you know, girl of the week, monster of the week, whatever. But it was a, a new thing, things going mm-hmm. on and learning, learning about them, learning about different beings and different uh, systems of belief and dis- different histories and everything. And I really think, yeah, okay, great. I understand they want to do something like that. But in a way, it's sad that, the, that every single one of them has gotten so far away from that. I'm not saying they trash it or anything, but that there, there just isn't that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think we we need at least one that doesn't require this absolute one-hour commitment every week, keep track of every subplot, you know, and where basically the Federation and Starfleet have turned away from what they were or been twisted or Mm -hmm. I think it would be nice. I agree. I think that should be the show with, with Captain Pike. I really do. Yeah. That yeah. would make the most sense. If you were going to do episodic and mm-hmm. optimistic and getting out there, that's the perfect place for it because that's where it really started. And those people yes. are very positive. You know, the look to that show, it's not dark at all. Uh-huh. It's very bright. They have the, you know, primary color uniforms and everything. I, I think that's what that should be. That'd be awesome. Yes. I, I agree. And because from even what we we have seen, um, we know that these the actors they have gotten, um, you know, playing uh, Pike and, and Spock and everything can play those uh, dualities of, yes, we're dead serious, but we're still kind of silly, too. You know, mm-hmm. that they have that 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 humor in there, which is a very, I'm going to insult Spock, a very human thing. <laughs> it's great. You know, the, the little short tricks that they did, the one with yes. uh, Spock and number one, it was funny. And they can yes. do that. Go ahead. Do it. Just do it. Mm-hmm. So, yep, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Good. We've settled that. Now we're, we're in agreement. Okay, here's a good article. This was at Screen Rant, and the title of the article is Star Trek, Cisco Meeting Kirk Was Much Better Than Picard. Uh, Picard met Kirk in Star Trek Generations, but that movie encounter was surpassed by a time-traveling Cisco meeting Kirk on, deep, on a Deep Space Nine episode. And the one thing I have to say about that is yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you could have stopped right after the headline. Um <laughs> But this article really, I felt, did a really good analysis of this. But one of the main things that they didn't bring up, okay, uh, Picard met Kirk, Cisco met Kirk. Who met the Kirk that you would want to meet? Yeah, definitely. Oh, you yeah. know, young, gorgeous, you know, let's let's get past the handshake stage. Um, that was, you know, my take on it. But it was, uh, first of all, that is a fantastic episode. And when we saw... Didn't they make a, a documentary about this yes, episode we or something? That, how they yep. how they did all the the mm-hmm. tricks of cutting them into it? That was amazing. It gives me great respect for it. They took one of the most popular, most beloved episodes, mm-hmm. gave us a new twist on it without shitting all over the original. Right. And at the end, that was the perfect ending. Mm-hmm. And anybody would have done that. Of Even course. the time cop admits he would have done it. Yep. Uh, of course. And as, as you say, to meet that version of Kirk, the one who is in his prime commanding the Enterprise, right? He's mm-hmm. he's completely in charge. He's the goddamn captain. That's the guy that you want to meet, not to challenge him, but just to tell him thank you, right? To yes, say, yes. It, it's an honor. It's an honor to serve with you. Yep. Completely that, agree. Yeah, yes. And it was the episode that really got to the hilarious time cops, which forever <laughs> will be my favorite thing. I love those guys. Well, you know, lately, the past few years, there's um, there have been a number of 
older celebrities dying and people who are not even really celebrities, but they've been on shows, you know. And like in the past week or so, there's been like two or three people who were on Seinfeld. And every time I see Seinfeld actor dies, I'm like, not the time cop! (laughs) The library cop, you know. The library cop, I know. Oh, so because good. that's that's just so classic. It's important. It's very important. Yes. So I, I would encourage everybody to read this article. It's short, but it's really good. And as you say, it's a really nice analysis of it. I don't think anybody disagrees that Generations is not a good movie and that no. it was slapped together just to provide mm-hmm. this transition between old and new track. And it's oh, just yeah. not very good. You know, despite Malcolm McDowell being in it, it's just not a very good movie. And, no. you know, no wonder Bill felt like he could just go ahead and bring Kirk back to life. It's like, that movie was shit. I'm just going to write a bunch of books <laughs> where he comes back to life. This has got to get well, better. And the thing is, remember Star Trek, the motion picture, when they made Wrath of Khan, they acted like motion picture never happened. Yeah. Yep. It just, maybe no, it was no, there. No. Yeah. Nobody cares. Um, nobody cares. So speaking of that, let's talk a little bit about uh, Wrath of Khan leaked scripts and spoilers and things. Yes. Um, this is an article from uh, Cinema Blend. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, I, I have heard all this before, but I just love it. And it contributes to my idea of the genius and wonder and imagination of that movie and of Star Trek in general. But it says Star Trek II spoilers. And so we're all remembering back to when we didn't know what was going to happen. The bizarre story about leaked scripts, nervous studios, and a clever solution. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the first thing is, you know, this was pre-internet. But things did get out. And people mm-hmm. heard about it that Spock was going to die. And so the hardcore fans were in an uproar. I was not a hardcore fan at that time. I wasn't participating in fandom, but, you know, I was interested. I knew I would see the movie and uh, very upset. I'm not going to go. And there was a letter writing campaign and everything. And the reason he was going to die is because Nimoy wanted this Mm -hmm. to be the end of it, for him at least. So he was going to die. And I had assumed at the time that what was linked was like, uh, uh, or leaked, was a photograph of the scene from that opening scene of Mm -hmm. the Kobe actually Maru scene and turns out I was wrong it was a a leaked bit of script and it was leaked by Roddenberry Mm -hmm. because he was pissed off that they were not doing what he wanted but um the idea and in this article and I fully believe it they say this was Nick Meyer's idea of how to handle it was to have that fake death at the very beginning Mm -hmm. it's brilliant get it out of the way and the thing is here's how I know it's it's true he totally fooled me when I finally went to the movie and I didn't go until I'd been playing a while but people had not told me what was going on and there he goes bam dead and then we realized it's this academy test it was like oh wonderful Mm -hmm. and I could settle back and not worry about Spock going to die Mm -hmm. and that upped the ante so much when he did die yeah they lulled you into a false sense of security it was it, it it was genius it was absolute genius I think. And the, the studio was, you know, very nervous about this, this whole thing, but uh, mm-hmm. it was so good. And so if any of you, I would love to know what your reactions were. Did you know, quote unquote, that Spock was supposed to die? Did you fall for it as, uh, as hard as I did? <laughs> Thinking, oh, okay, he died. That's cool. Um, oh, he's back, you know. And do you feel that impacted your response to the end of the movie? You know, I can't remember. Oh, see, I remember very clearly. I I remember going to see it. I remember hearing the rumors. And I think I remember 
maybe even having a spoiler from someone who had seen it who said, mm. yeah, he dies, but he doesn't really die, like to refer to the coffin at the end, you know, mm-hmm. on the planet. So I I think it didn't, like, I, I knew that the beginning scene wasn't going to be it. And then when it, the stuff came down, of course, it was terribly affecting and all that. But I don't think mm-hmm. I felt like, oh, no, Leonard Nimoy is never coming back in the role of Spock. I think I, I might have known. But I, I really can't remember it that clearly. I don't know mm. why. I, I should. Because I remember going to see the first movie. And I remember some of the other movies. I, I remember seeing the one with the whales. Um, I think, gosh... I was in England when I saw it then. Really? Yeah, uh, we were on vacation and it was like a cold day. Let's go to the movies. And we went to see that. Um, I think it's interesting that the information on this, so this article is based on a watch along. This is what's happening a lot. So as we were saying mm-hmm. up at the top of the show, everybody's doing watch alongs now. So not just people who do podcasts like us, but people who made the movies and the TV shows yes. are having people do it. And they're either tweeting along with it. They've been doing that for quite a number of Doctor Who episodes where the writers and the stars are um, tweeting as they're watching. You know, everybody says press play mm-hmm. at the same time. So this was the guys on the Inglorious Trexperts podcast, which I mentioned before, and they were doing yes. a watch along of Star Trek 2. So Mark A. Altman, who also wrote uh, a book that I'll be talking about in a little bit called The 50-Year Mission, was answering fan questions about Wrath of Khan and how it came to be. And this was the basis of this article. They were just capitalizing on what he said and um, where the ideas for the script came from. And I got to say, having read through most of his book, um, what you said before that Gene Roddenberry was pissed because things weren't mm-hmm. turning out, that happened a lot. A lot. <laughs> that was sort of normal, especially when mm-hmm. they got into the movies and during Next Generation, because he was a control freak in a lot of ways. And even when his ideas were bad, he couldn't let them go. And it caused a lot of problems behind the scenes, mm-hmm. just trying to get the scripts developed. And he had very definite ideas about what should happen. And they weren't always good movie ideas. So, yeah, you know, it was hard for him to let other people take it. And sometimes they just had to take control away from him in order yes. to get the goddamn thing done. Um, going on now, I didn't know this part. Nick Meyer did not want to do that ending Mm -hmm. where the coffin ended up on the uh, Genesis planet. Mm -hmm. And there is a a quote here. Oh, this is Mark Altman. He says, "Um, producer Robert Salen was the one who famously shot the ending that Nick Meyer didn't want them to do. Because after they tested it and Nimoy realized that he had a good time and wanted to potentially come back in Star Trek III, they realized that it was too much of a bummer that Spock was dead dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as in nobody ever dies and stays dead really really most sincerely dead yes <laughs> yes <laughs> um and then it goes on and i just love this sentence it just so happens that in the case of this particular film the rocky road to finality only helped it become the classic that it's regarded as today yeah, and it is I, it totally is yeah it's the best star trek movie and uh, possibly one of the best science fiction movies ever um, really. i just i'm all like into reading these lists and I just read one that did list this as like the number five yeah it's um, way best science there. fiction movie it's really good and the thing is you know they say well yeah if it had flopped we wouldn't have had three or we would have had a different three or something I'm going if it had flopped that would have been the end of the the franchise yeah yeah because absolutely the, the, the impact of that movie was so great that they got bigger budgets they did three they did four they did five mm-hmm. which was not so great but they knew they could do really good stuff so they kept going 
Yep, yep. You know, it it has a ripple effect all the way all the way through. Yeah, and showed that they could continue to do it on TV as well. You know, the mm-hmm. TV stuff would never have been as successful if they hadn't made this movie really, really work and oh, show yeah. that people were interested, not just in bringing back Star Trek as in the motion picture to say, hey, it's still happening and we can have adventures, but to say, let's branch out, let's do new stuff, let's let's mm-hmm. see where we can go with this. That was what really proved it. Um, Altman's quote, is earlier in the article he says the thing that's so brilliant that nick meyer did he said let's kill spock in the simulator scene and everybody's going to think oh it's all a publicity gimmick of course he doesn't really die spock's going to be fine and they got us they fooled us of course Mm -hmm. it really tees up the ending of the movie where spock does in fact die for 20 minutes until star trek (laughs) three yes yeah this is something I don't think we've ever mentioned or talked about. Because when we talk about Star Trek Three, you know, you talk about Khan and, you know, certain things. And the ending, of course. But that opening scene in the simulator, when the, when the test is over and the doors open mm-hmm. and Kirk enters and he's backlit, that is such a fantastic sequence. Oh, it's great. Oh, my God. My heart, like, just about stops. Yep. And I, the other thing I love that they did when they did these movies was they didn't say, well, let's take another ship and give it a new captain and do all these things. They let us follow these characters that we know and love right up to their their death deaths, mm-hmm. you know, pretty much, which I, I really can't think of anything that has done that unless it was intended to be part of a series of films or a series of TV or whatever that follows somebody through their whole life. This just worked out that way. Mm-hmm. It did. And it's pretty miraculous. Yeah, that's been the subject of a couple of different columns. I think we talked about one of them where the reviewer was saying it's so it was at that time too so refreshing to see movies that let the actors age and have that play oh, yeah. into the script to see them be older versions of themselves and not try to pretend like all these movies took place within six months of the previous one, right? That right, they're just right. stuck in a time and place. You see time passes, they get older, things happen, they change, you know, they're still the same mm-hmm. characters, but stuff happens to them. And that is just, it's still very rare to see that happen where people it get older. Is. And I think it's one of the things that, you know, I liked about Picard was that he's a little old man now. He's not <laughs> Jean-Luc Picard jumping around mm-hmm. the Enterprise and being the action hero. He's like this frail old man who is not able to do any of that shit that he used mm-hmm. to do. And it's really hard for him. And I'm, I'm glad that they leaned into that rather than trying to overlook it and just say, oh, well, right. it's the future and he's got bionic legs or something so of course he can run really fast um i don't know if it was intentional or not but in a way it's the ultimate fan service without being pandering but it acknowledged how real these people are to us the fans Mm. you know to to be able to to keep walking beside them Mm -hmm. as they age and as we age yeah 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 acknowledging that the fandom changes mm-hmm. as well leaving room for the right. new people to come in but acknowledging the people who have been there all along since 1967 right. yeah and they don't just keep having the same adventure over and over you know unlike most sequels nowadays which it is the same adventure with a bigger budget yeah you know. more but, explosion. Um, yeah i'm really glad to see this you know this sort of appreciation because yeah. i think this movie as a movie had impact 
outside of the Star Trek fandom and the Star Trek franchise. Mm -hmm. I think it it shows some real creativity on the part of the creative people. And, you know, we've talked before about, you know, I've done cheap dinner theater and cheap summer stock. And sometimes it's some of the best stuff you can do because you don't have money to throw out those problems. Mm -hmm. And you've Mm -hmm. got to get creative. Yeah. You know, and this is some of the most creative stuff that just, you know, the first time you see it, you're like, whoa, if you know even a little of the background, you're going... That's amazing. And if somebody had sat down to write that as like their first draft, that's not where it would have gone. No, totally not. And of course, the director got amazing performances out of all the cast. You Mm -hmm. know, just knew exactly what to do. And having, you know, we both read stories about how he had to bring Bill down from uh, a certain point to be a lot more relaxed and comfortable and underplayed in some of his performance, Mm -hmm. you know, just brilliant getting him to do that because it's just Mm -hmm. so effective. Right. And and Nicholas Meyer is very much a gentleman. He says, yeah, I've heard, you know, those stories. And and he says, whatever the truth is, that performance is Bill's and Mm -hmm. it's amazing. Yeah, he doesn't say. Yeah, I was really key in it. You know, I'm like, (laughs) none of that bullshit going on. No, it was all Bill. It was just him shaping Mm -hmm. it and getting the best. Yeah, um, yeah. I I always think about that scene right, you know, near the beginning where Kirk has to. Khan is waiting for him to send the codes over. Yes. And the story is that Bill was playing it at a really high level, very loud and, and um, mm-hmm. just overplaying it too much. And they rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it. And it took forever, many takes until finally mm-hmm. he got it down to what you see in the movie, which is so subtle and so good. Mm-hmm. And just, it's it's chilling, right? It really is. Like yeah. when he says, here it comes. And it's just oh, like, oh, my God, you know what's going to yeah, happen. Because so we're in on the secret, but yeah. Khan isn't, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a wonderful movie. Not like Impulse, but that's okay. (laughs) Impulse is wonderful in its own special, unique way. It's a special needs movie. (laughs) <laughs> it needs love different than the love you would have for Wrath of Khan it's true Wrath of Khan <laughs> Wrath of Khan can stand alone on its own mm-hmm. impulse needs context and it needs people to help you into it I think yes I think so too alright hey let's take a little break and then yes. uh, you know what we're going to come back and talk about Star Trek again alright <laughs> space a final frontier <laughs> These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Listeners, we would love to hear from you. Send us email at lookathisbutt at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook and leave us a comment. Tell us your Trek news. Um, Our next little topic here is about discovery. Discovery. And this is from Gizmodo. And this, again, is another one worth reading in full. But we're going to summarize and, you know, give our ideas. But it says, Brian Fuller's original plans for Star Trek Discovery's mirror universe were so much better than what we got. And it's pointing out that, you know, uh, Fuller left the show, but they were planning to uh, go into the mirror universe. And it says, uh, and he was talking about this. 
In particular, he went into a detailed examination of how he had intended to approach our heroes, visiting the crueler, harsher, yet still eerily familiar world of the mirror universe in ways that felt both reflective of our current climate and honoring what made the mirror universe such a fearsome and compelling concept in the first place. Um, Yeah, because when you think about it, when the mirror universe was first introduced, that was a Jekyll and Hyde sort of thing. You know, Mm -hmm. it was the the duality, the the flip side of the coin, sort of similar to what they'd done like with Enemy Within and and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. he says, I thought that there were there are elements in the mirror universe that we have seen that have sort of boiled to the broadest ends of the spectrum mm-hmm. and everything felt really binary. And what I really wanted to do in setting out was looking at the minutiae of simple decisions that have a cascade effect on our lives. So it's not about gold lame sashes, although it is, <laughs> and goatees versus no sash and clean shaven. It's more about we are at forks in the road every moment of our lives and and we either go left or go right. Mm-hmm. And for him, that meant a less simplistic story of the Discovery crew facing off against their Terran Empire counterparts, but instead something that felt more reflective about the emotional questions that come from being faced with the literal representation of the alternative to every moral choice they've made. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would love to see that, you know? Yeah, it would have been very interesting. I was just thinking as you were talking that I, I I see also in the original Mirror Universe, you know, there were definitely echoes of Soviet Russia in there, mm-hmm. right? or at least the Western perception of Soviet Russia. Right, that, right. You know, it was all evil and people were tortured and the way that you moved up was assassinating the people in front of you. And it was just mm-hmm. about getting out the tanks and, and kind of rolling it over. I was actually thinking about that the other day because I was reading, oh my God, it's just so crazy that um, in Russia, two different doctors who were criticizing the government's response to the coronavirus mm-hmm. problem fell out of fifth story windows. Yes. Which is, yes. doesn't that strike you as extremely Soviet? That's like a 1950s <laughs> kind of thing, you know? Yes, yes. Yeah, they fell out of windows, two of them, in the same week. Sure. <laughs> it, it's it's so old school. Yes. It's weird. It's like, I can't believe it's 2020 and this is still happening. But yep. a lot of that feels very much like Mirror Universe. That this is the cartoon version of, of what mm-hmm. we would think, where there is no respect for human life and, and all the rest of it. And yeah, he's right. You know, um, it's much more interesting when you look at how that would actually work because a lot of people have pointed out when kind of analyzing the mirror universe if it was really as all bad as it seems it would disintegrate immediately <laughs> like it, well, they would never he, yeah they'd never yeah. get anything done and and it would be constant chaos all the time so but how it's does like, it stay together because the mirror universe when we first see it takes place on the enterprise mm-hmm. which is a, a fully military vessel now mm-hmm. not an exploration ship except for what it can plunder um they're like the kgb you know, yeah, there may be yeah. people black back on Earth and on various planets and everything who are like, this really sucks. We can't keep living like this, you know, and everything. Mm-hmm. But we're looking at the hardcore. Mm-hmm. And I, what I always think of when I was reading this was um, Kirk in the original episode has a great line about, well, let's find out who we are in this universe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not let's find out who these guys are, who our counterparts are. It's who we are. Yeah. And it is yeah. not, it's not good. And I... I think that would be to look at that and go, so this guy who is me can and has become this. Yeah. That's that's in me to go down that path. Right. How did I become him? Yeah, exactly. Yep. 
it would have been super interesting. I, mm-hmm. I feel like that's part of the reason that the other Mirror Universe episodes of Star Trek, whether they were in DS9 or Voyager or whatever, were just not that interesting because they never bothered to really look at it. Mm-mm. They were played very broadly and almost for comedy in some places. Like, let's give the actors a chance to choose some scenery and wear these yes. costumes. And, you know, it, it never kind of grappled with that very question of how did they get that way? And yeah. why are they still like that? And that would have been super interesting. And what happened, let's say, on Earth and the various planets, that this was the system that became in charge? I'm not going to say that they embraced, but mm-hmm. this is the system that they built, as opposed to the system, quote unquote, our Starfleet heroes are part of. Yeah. So how did that happen? Was it yeah. all at once? Was it a series of steps? Why is it still happening? And who's in charge? And yep. yeah, it would have been very good. But, you know, that would have, I can see that that was too ambitious for what they were oh, trying to do. Oh, absolutely. But to do it for a, a couple of the characters, you know, is... Yeah. Well, you know, maybe with with some of the, the new stuff that's coming, um, there might be a little more dipping into that. Since we have a character who's from the Mirror Universe, we might get to find out mm-hmm. more via her story. Like, maybe she'll be the gateway into yes. understanding more about the Mirror Universe, which would be very cool. Right. Well, you know, somebody who um would be ambitious and creative if they could get the uh, okay from the powers that be you know how there's the the compendium and all the different star trek events somebody could write and they could make it all up um the history of the, of the mirror universe pick yeah. the point where it cut off and what was the point where it cut off when we landed mm-hmm. on the moon yeah or much later and these are the 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 various if you're going to teach history of the mirror universe <laughs> these are the people and the events you would focus on yeah i bet there's probably at least 10 of those in archive of our own fan fiction archive. Oh, but I'm not talking about, well, yeah, there probably is, but I'm talking about really a, a full book, a compendium. Sure. Yeah, you no, I, I think so. I think the fan fiction ones would probably be better than anything that Paramount would license, though. Well, yeah, that's a given. <laughs> So very interesting. Um, yeah. I I hadn't known about that. This was very recent because he was on mm-hmm. um, an inter- He was doing an interview and he started talking right. about that. But I hadn't heard about this stuff before. So it was I, really- it's a good thought piece. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, gold lame and and goatees though. I think <laughs> you can't get away from that. That sounds like <laughs> that sounds like the name of a, a, a burlesque review. <laughs> you know, gold lames. And go tease. It probably was at some point. (laughs) Oh, Oh, yeah. I I am just in love with the fact that that one episode of Star Trek made the goatee into (laughs) a science fiction trope that continues to this day that has just permeated everything. Every universal symbol of evil yes it's amazing it's just it's in everything it's all you have to do is give that person be that person with a goatee and yep yep it's it's the most amazing shorthand i i think that people who have never seen mirror mirror understand that right like they don't even know i think so yeah (laughs) well it's it's kind of like even people who never saw jaws understand the joke of we got to get a bigger boat right yes it's exactly. Like, that that's that's so permeated our our mm-hmm. our pop culture. Yep, agreed. Yep, the goatee. Uh, I love it. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. Uh oh, I think it's me. It's over to me now, right? Over to you. <laughs> 
as I said previously in this episode, not five minutes ago, uh, I've been reading this book, The 50-Year Mission, which is an oral history of Star Trek. And uh, Mark A. Altman was one of the co-authors. He's the guy who uh, also a co-host of the Inglorious Trexperts podcast. Mm-hmm. And this book is really interesting. I, I have had it for a while, but I hadn't really dived into it because it's, as you see many oral histories that have been on AV Club and other places, it's all told through interviews with different people. So any topic is just, you know, here's a paragraph paragraph from Gene Roddenberry and here's a paragraph from Shatner and here's a paragraph from Bob Justman and it's in their own words talking about whatever that subject happens to be. There's no overarching third person narrator to kind of Mm -hmm. give you the facts as you go through it. So on the one hand it is super interesting to get the recollections of the people who were there. On the other hand it's super frustrating because you don't know what the truth is, right? Everybody has their own truth and given that it's now uh, 60 years ago you know who knows right you don't know most of these interviews are contemporaneous now they're not interviews that were done in in 67 or whatever and sometimes you hear a lot more from one person than another person so you're never quite sure which I guess is real life right everybody yeah has their own version of events so I wanted to just focus now I'm going to come back to this book in future podcasts because there's some really good stuff in here but of course I was looking for the stuff about Bill of course and here are some interesting things so first of all here's something from Walter Koenig where he says, Bill was a lot of fun. You'd blow a line and he'd laugh. There was a lot of joy and enthusiasm and ebullience on the set, but I did notice that every shot was ultimately set up so everyone who was in a scene with Bill was behind him. But he was fun. <laughs> He's I really the didn't know. He's the captain. I really didn't know about all this acrimony and the counting of the pages, which I had validated by Harlan Ellison when Bill came up to his house and showed him a script and how in City on the Edge of Forever, Spock had more lines than he did. I shudder mm-hmm. at that. That's something that actors don't do. Well, actors do do it yes <laughs> Walter was very young at that time so. I guess um, so here's Gene Roddenberry he says Bill was very upset when Leonard came on particularly strong at the beginning of the series because he said am I not the captain how come the writers don't appreciate that it was a very natural reaction I said to Shatner if we had an Eskimo as a second character you could be sure the Eskimo would get the most delightful lines because of what he is I advised him not to worry about Spock because all of that reflected on Shatner, particularly if Shatner continued just to treat Spock properly in the show. I suggested they could show each other lots of friendship in the show and it would eventually right itself. I really enjoy how he's saying, particularly if Shatner continued to treat Spock properly in the show. It's like mm-hmm. totally conflating the actor and the role. Okay. Yes. Fine. Yes. All right. That's good. Now here is Norman Spinrad, one of the writers. Mm-hmm. He said, Bill Shatner's problem is that he just wasn't given as interesting a character to play as Nimoy was. He was the lead character, supposedly the most important, but he couldn't be the most interesting. It was not a reflection on him as an actor because I remember him as a very good actor before that, but he didn't have the part, even though the contract said he did. That led to all the line stealing and all the kind of crazy lunatic stuff in any number of scripts where the captain went crazy because somebody was trying to take away his ship. In a funny kind of way, this gave the character of Kirk more depth. It gave Kirk a little edge somewhere that was really Shatner, which was a good way to use it. Mm-hmm. Another thing to consider is that if this cast has been together for this long, then the actors have got to be a part of the character which can give them more depth if people know what they're doing. So I, I don't know. I don't know that Kirk wasn't as interesting as 
Spock was in well, a different way? Well, here's the thing. We don't, we don't know what the original intent was. Yeah. But, you know, we started getting um, uh, plots with his backstory, you know, like mm-hmm. with uh, Caridian. Um, and like they said, you know, the, the where he, he went crazy and revealed other things about himself. And my feeling has been in a television show, you start out with these broad strokes and as you see the audience reaction, get to know the actors, get to know mm-hmm. the characters, you start writing to those strengths. Mm-hmm. You know, what can this guy play? Hey, did you know so-and-so can uh, juggle? Oh, well, let's get a juggling scene in there somehow. You yeah, know, yeah. play with those things. Give them things to do, too, because bored actors, you don't want that. Yeah. Well, uh, it's, I don't know. I, I'm I'm not sure. I still am not sure that Kirk was a less interesting character than Spock, even from the beginning. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, it's certainly not to me. I mean, we watch, you and I watch We're No Man, and we're going, that's a full performance. That's full character there. Yeah. And he's completely interesting. And he's got this conflict of his very real human feeling for a friend and for a fellow human being. Mm-hmm. And this very difficult duty to the rest of the crew, to the ship, to it's all happening there. Yeah, it's the first half of the first season. I mean, he's just nailing it in every episode. Mm-hmm. Yep. He is Kirk. Okay. Um, so going on now, here's a very interesting comment from George Takei. So he says, there is a difference between working with Leonard and working with Bill. Leonard has an iron core, that determination to get what he wants. But at the same time, you get from Leonard a principled position and there is sincerity in what he says. With Bill, you always suspect a second agenda that he's got his reason for wanting whatever he wants. If you don't agree with Leonard, you can have an honest, straightforward discussion of issues, whereas Bill would try to cover it up with a jokey camaraderie, an anecdote, or some flattery. But you don't trust Bill. With Leonard, I usually see what he's driving at, and if you don't, he will sincerely be open to listening to you, taking what you see, and either accepting it on its merits, or if he has a difference, you discuss that with him until you arrive at a genuinely mutual position, whereas Bill has a more vivaciously suspect attitude. And that, I thought that was very interesting. Like, that's one of the more perceptive things that I think George Takei has ever said Mm -hmm. about Bill. And I agree with him in a lot of ways. I think, you know, we've discussed a lot about Bill's insecurity. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where that comes from, right? That he... He wants to be liked. He wants to be the most important guy in the room. And Mm -hmm. he does have another agenda that's going on where he can't be 100% honest and open with his fellow actors. That's just not him. Well, and here's here's the flip side of that. George Takei is doing the same thing. What does he want of all these things that he's always saying (laughs) about Bill? Does he want the world to go, you're right, he's a bad person and you should have been the lead. What What is his jokey, you know, cute motivation? Yeah. That uh, he's he's covering up. Gets him a lot of convention appearances. I uh-huh. Don't know. Uh-huh. Uh, so that was good. Then we hear from Walter Koenig again, which is great. Bill had an enormous sense of responsibility for the show. He was the star. He was going to make it work. And he was the guy who was getting paid the big bucks. So he wanted to make sure the vision that he saw represented the show's success was consistently there in every episode. But he was also very self-involved and was concerned primarily about his character, but he was fun and charming. Yes, all of those things. I agree with every single thing that he says there. Yes. One of the things that I learned in this book, which we may have talked about before, but I can't remember, is that one of the things that Bill really started to do until... Um, they put a stop to it, was that as they were filming each episode, when they had downtime between takes, when they were setting up different things, he wanted everybody to get around the table and rehearse and do table reads Mm -hmm. all the time. Like it was very disruptive because 
it didn't leave the directors any time to work with the actors individually. Like Bill wanted to be the one in charge of making everybody sit down at a table and run lines together. And the directors were like, you are disrupting my set. We cannot do this. We have to get ready for the next scene. You can't just take over and make everybody run lines with you because you want to have table reads. It doesn't work that way. Well, Um, running lines and table reads are two different things. But I have never heard this before. That's amazing. Yeah, well, I I hadn't either. But he literally didn't want to just sit with one actor and run lines like that. He wanted everybody sitting at a table together like it was a, a real table read of, of mm-hmm. going around and doing it. So sort of a cross between those two things. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, they had to shut that down after a while because it was just not, not going to work. So yeah. I, men- I mentioned that because... We have this amazing quote from Yvonne Craig. You remember Yvonne Craig? Yeah, Batgirl. Yes, Batgirl. <laughs> and uh, she played uh, the, what was her name? Marta, the green. Marta, Orion. yes. Yes, and girl. So about Bill Shatner. I didn't want him to touch me. He's an awful man. Part of it <laughs> is the fact that he just has no social skills. As long as I was painted green, he was trying to grab me behind flats on the sets. He invited me to his dressing room to have lunch the first day, and it was the strangest lunch I ever had. We didn't talk. We ate lunch. He told me that he raised Doberman pinchers. He didn't grab me or anything. It was just weird. And after that, when he wasn't after me, he's giving me all this background about my character and tell me where he wants me to stand so his best side is showing. It was just horrible. Wow. <laughs> so I'd never read that before. Me neither. So, again, um, lack of social skills. I mean, what, remember we talked in, was it the last episode or the one before that, where he took that poor actress out for a drive, mm-hmm. right? The one who was in a Space Hippies episode. And yeah. Apparently had no social skills with her either and gave her a watch or some goddamn thing <laughs> like that. Like, how weird, how weird it was that even at that point, he could just fail to, to treat mm-hmm. people like human beings. So, so weird. Yeah. Um, and then again, you know, he's give as she says, he's giving me all this background about my character. So again, he's trying to like control what's happening in the episode mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. if he's the co-director or something and, you know, saying, "Here's your backstory." Like, "No, don't do that." Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I do believe the part where he says he wants me to stand in a place so his best mm-hmm. sign is showing. <laughs> That's part of being a star. I don't know if you remember this, but back in the 80s, a friend and I watched Johnny Carson every single night. It was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And one night, the guest was supposed to be Barbara Streisand. And um, they did a big publicity thing because, you know, she never did this stuff. And then she didn't show up. And they just had to get, I think it was Larry Hagman. They called him on his car phone and said, can you come over here and be a guest? Oh, sure. Um, The reason was she wanted to enter from the other side, not the side everybody enters from, because that's her best side. Oh. And she refused to do the show because they wouldn't let her do that. Wow. Uh, Yep, that totally makes sense. That's, you know, I mean... Yeah, no, I know. I I think Bill probably does have limitations in this area. But when you are a star or are rising to become a star, you realize what your assets and your commodities are. Mm -hmm. And you've got to play to those. And you don't want people being made aware of, you know, his face looks kind of funny on that side or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, I was watching Brain and Brain, what his brain was on a couple nights ago. Mm. And it was really clear that Bill was wearing some sort of foundational garment underneath his uniform. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, because it, it was that part of the season where he really had but to. But that so. was the season 
opener. Well, he needed it because he was definitely yeah. wearing something. Yeah. Wow. Oh, I also watched um, For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. Mm-hmm. Have we ever watched that together? That's a bad episode. Yes, we did watch it. Oh, I can't even remember. But I was I watched it again and I was bored again. It was not yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. One more thing about this book. Um, okay. I remember reading in one of David Gerald's books that at some point in uh, season two, I think things had gotten kind of bad between Bill and Leonard just in terms of who's getting more fan mail and who's Mm -hmm. getting more lines and all the rest of that. And Roddenberry had to write a letter to them to say, cut this shit out. And apparently it did the job because he spoke to them in quite harsh terms. And they said, all right, we have to stop acting like this. And David Gerald makes a big deal out of saying nobody saw the letter. It was only delivered to the two of them. Well, in this book, we get to see the letter. (gasps) Oh, my God. I never heard there was a letter. I heard there was a meeting. So go ahead. Yes. So I'm only going to read the part that was addressed to Bill. But I will tell you that the parts addressed to Leonard are just as not bad, but stern. I will say stern. Interestingly, the letter also mentions DeForest Kelly, but there isn't really anything addressed to him. Uh It's weird. Like, why was he included in this? I don't know. There's no real criticism. Okay. And and the funny thing is that Roddenberry addresses him as William. He doesn't call him Bill, even though clearly. Yeah, it's like a parent, right? Yes, that's just what I thought. William Allen Shatner. (laughs) Okay, he says, uh, now to specifics. William, yes, when discussing the Spock character, you say all the right things. Wonderful character for the show, highly valuable, large factor in our success, Nimoy handles it with skill. Nice sentiments, very pro. Except that your actions make it painfully obvious to everyone that you don't believe it for a minute. Your constant frantic concern, not only over Spock's lines, but lately McCoy's, Scott's, and most recently even Chekhov's small part, is almost embarrassing apparent and is a key factor in the sabotage and breakdown of whatever stage morale is left. You said to me the other day, and more lately to others, that you're going to show us what a star is really like. If that is meant as a threat, I'll be forced into the only possible answer. I'll show you what a producer is really like. Let each of you be aware that as long as I'm on the show, I'll run it and I'll damned well keep running it until the day I leave. You've been saying lately that you were told you'd be completely dominant as the star of the show, that you've been misled and the stories had better start being exclusive exclusively about you or else. Bullshit. You saw the first pilot. You read the format. You played some 20 or more episodes without any such comment or complaint. The name of the show is Star Trek. It's not about to be changed to The Adventures of Captain Kirk. The concept stays as we've played it for a year and a half, and the concept will not be changed. I want you to realize fully where your fight for absolute screen dominance is taking you. It's already affecting the image of Captain Kirk on the screen. We're heading for an arrogant, loud, half-assed Queeg character who is so blatantly in secure upon the screen that he can't afford to let anyone else have an idea, give an order, or solve a problem. You can't hide things like that from an audience. The camera is there day after day, and like it or not, it'll show through. How do you like that? I say my mouth is hanging open. Um, first of all, I had heard there was a meeting. I never heard about this letter. Yeah. That's stunning. Yeah. Uh, amazing. Like, And like I said, the stuff he says to Leonard is just as, as harsh to say, you are behaving terribly. And, you know, Bill's making mistakes, but you are being awful as well. So in the end, he just basically says, you guys need to cut it out. You both need to start behaving. Um, he says, he concludes, for as long as long as I stay with the show, starting Monday, there will be no more line switches from one another, from one to another. The directors will be instructed all such changes they wish must be 
made during their preparation week. No more long discussions about scenes which lose us approximately a half day of production on a show. The director will permit it only when there is a valid dramatic story or interpretation point at stake which he believes makes it necessary. The director will be told he is also replaceable and failure to stay on top and in charge of the set will be grounds for his dismissal. So that's amazing. I can't believe that things got so bad that he was forced to do this but clearly you know like when he says wasting a half a day with them talking about which would my character do this? Would my character do that? How many lines does this person have and all the rest of it? I mean, that is really unprofessional. That is just not the way you behave. Well, and the, the whole idea of it sounds like a parent. It sounds like they were acting like 12-year-olds. Yeah, it really does. You know, I, I kind of, I understand the fact that here are these guys, they've been actors, right? Working actors for a long time. They're suddenly thrust into the spotlight and their show is very successful and they're getting bags and bags of mail and being asked to be marshals of parades. Like it goes to your head right but still especially when you've struggled for so long right and then you know you let that start to affect the way you are with your co-stars and everything else that is just not okay so that was worth it it was totally worth reading it to get to that amazing wow yes i wonder how bill responded to this it doesn't say I mean, like if he um, just responded, I got your message and I understand, or if he made no response at all, or if he tried to defend his actions. I don't know. It it doesn't say repercussions other than that things settled down on the set. I got to think like if it were me, I don't know that I would have responded at all aside from changing my behavior, you know? Right, right. I don't, I don't know. It would have been sort of humiliating to go in and go, you were right. I was stupid. <laughs> Nobody wants to do that. That's awful. Yeah. Oh, boy. Sorry, Dad. Yeah, sorry. It's that, it's that Eddie Haskell. Yeah. <laughs> down, in, down in engineering. So we get in trouble. <laughs> Amazing. So uh, this book is good, and um, I'm, I, will, I will definitely be reading more from it because it's totally worth it. Lastly, and I know our show is going long, but um, this is totally worth it. Uh, I read another book. Like I said, I've been trying to read to keep myself busy uh, while this pandemic is happening. So uh, as I told you, Amazon Prime was offering... Kindle Unlimited for free for a couple of months. And Kindle Unlimited is sort of a mixed bag, right? Like uh, some of the stuff is really good and some of the stuff is a bunch of self-published garbage and it's not really worth reading. Whenever I sign up for Kindle Unlimited, the first thing I do is search through the free books for books about Bill and Star Trek and stuff like that. So a a while ago, I had heard that there was a biography of DeForest Kelly and I thought, well, that might be interesting if it's short, you know, like just to know because he's an interesting guy and there is a biography it's not free but then I found this other book and it's called DeForest Kelly Up Close and Personal A Harvest of Memories from the Fan Who Knew Him Best and it's by Chris M. Smith and if you have Kindle Unlimited you can go get it for free right now and I would say boy what is my opinion about this book who's Chris M. Smith so Chris Smith is... Am I supposed to recognize that name? No, not at all, except I have this very sneaking feeling we might have met them at a con in our long history of going to cons at a Star Trek con. It's possible. Um, So Chris is trans, now a trans man, um, identified as a woman back in the day when all this stuff happened. So I'm going to use he pronouns because that's what he prefers. Uh, started off as a Star Trek fan in 1967, I guess, when the show was first on and was a McCoy fan from the very beginning, um, lived up in sort of a rural part of Washington. And DeForest Kelly came to some 
thing that they were having there. And he got to run up there and get his autograph. And then they ended up corresponding for a while. And that course, wow. yeah, I know, right? <laughs> And that correspondence eventually grew into an actual real friendship. And Chris moved to California, to Los Angeles, to try to work in the entertainment industry, uh, sort of as an admin, but also doing some production and writing, which he eventually did, and ended up living really close to DeForest Kelly and became really, really good friends with him and his wife. And then, in a very strange turn of events, became DeForest Kelly's caregiver at the very end of his life and was with him when he died. Oh, my goodness. I know. I was like, okay, I never knew any of that stuff. So it's it's a very weird book. It's a good book. Um, it really shows you what kind of person Kelly was. Like, he was, it seems, by all accounts, a genuinely nice guy, really a nice guy, you know, nice to his fans, had a lot of friends, had this deep and wonderful relationship with his wife, Carolyn. They were married for 45 years or something like that. Um, you know, kind of took his Star Trek fandom in stride and realized very quickly after Star Trek was over that he was never going to have anything else in his life. Like that was it. <laughs> he was typecast as McCoy and was like, all right, I can do this. And he did the movies and was making like pretty good money speaking at conventions because he was one of the big three, of course. So he got paid quite a lot. And so that was how he earned a living besides the Star Trek movies um, was basically doing conventions and selling, you know, photographs of himself and other public speaking appearances. And, you know, he wasn't, he, he's so opposite from Bill. He wasn't driven, you know, he wasn't like, I have to make it. I have to keep doing this. He had had a long career on TV and in B movies as uh, in Westerns, especially as a heavy. So it wasn't like he was out there thirsty for more work. You know, he just was like, well, I have a good income and I don't really need to work. And I guess I'll just, you know, write some poetry and take care of my garden. And he was very happy doing all that. That is, you know, very clear that he, he got what he wanted out of life. But the sad part is that it seemed at the end of his life, he really didn't have a lot of people he could trust. And that made me really sad, um, you know, that they had friends. Did he have children? They never had children, no, by choice. They didn't have kids. They never wanted to adopt. Um, they had a tortoise named Myrtle that lived in their backyard. And Aww. they did have dogs. And the story that Bill tells about the dog getting killed by the sprinkler thing is not in this book. And I kind of think that Bill made that up. I think so, too, because I've heard it, a similar story told as a joke by other people. Yeah. So I don't think that ever actually happened. I can't believe that it wouldn't have been in this book with everything else, the minutiae that's in this book. Um, so what had happened was that, you know, the two of them were getting older and um, his wife, Carolyn, had had a lot of problems. She'd had some spinal surgery and various other things. And eventually, unfortunately, she fell and she broke her leg and she went into the hospital and never really came home from the hospital because her leg would not heal. And Kelly was dealing with um, stomach cancer. And I'm not sure that that was right. It actually, to me, sounded a hell of a lot like what happened to my dad, who had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, not technically stomach cancer. He had tumors in his abdomen, which is what killed him eventually. And Sad to say, just like my dad, he didn't go get help for it until it was really too late. This was, you know, in the 90s when there were, you know, there could be radiation and you could have some chemotherapy, but there, your chances were not good if the disease had progressed. So he eventually... Um, ended up going into a hospital. And again, I don't think it was a hospital. It sounds more like a um, palliative care place where where he was and his wife was. And so they got to see each other a lot, but 
he was there for several months and, and he eventually, um, he died. Did he die before she did? Yeah, she was alive for like another five years after he passed away. And it was horrible for her because they'd been married for 45 years. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the whole way he died was really awful. And she was having some issues with dementia and other things. And it just, it sounds really bad. Um, so all of this, I never knew any of this stuff about it. And the the chapters about him being sick and being in the hospital and, and Chris taking care of him are really touching and obviously very real. Like you read them and you're like, yeah, I feel like I'm there. And to the end, it seems like he was just, I don't know, like not wanting to bother people and saying like, oh, you don't have to come if, if you're busy today, I understand. And, you know, not wanting to bother the nurses and all the rest of it. It's like, oh man, you know, you just know the kind of guy he must have been. Um, so that's the, the part, the end of the book. The other part of the book is, uh, the first parts are the story of how Chris became friends with them. And he, at that time, she, but he was very involved in Trek fandom and appeared, like went to all the conventions and did things. And it sounded a lot of it was like our experience, like, oh, I went there and I roomed with my friends and we had a great time and we stayed up until four o'clock in the morning and we got thrown out because we were making, you know, like all of that stuff that that went along with, with fandom. Um, and there are parts of it where he talks about the things that they were doing at the convention that were sort of McCoy oriented. You know, they were making fanzines. There was an official fan club. They were doing sketches. They were dressing up and all that. And some of it is so cringy, right? Like, I remember that. And I also remember that impulse to share with your idol. It's like, I wrote this funny poem about you. Isn't it great? And you're reading it. And you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I showed it to this person. Yeah. So there's a lot of that where you totally get the fans intense desire to connect with this person through sort of the worst way in fandom that's possible just by being so overboard and so fanatical. So that part is hard to get through. I found it very difficult to read through that. And I skipped some of it because it was just too much saying, uh, you know, uh, like, wow, fandom is weird, isn't it? (laughs) I remember that. It really is. I remember it. But yet Kelly was very gracious and never said, you guys are weird, fuck off. You know, he was very, very nice to them and did a really professional job of enforcing boundaries until I think all of the people involved had sort of aged out of the fanatical part and settled down into being real people. And then the real friendship blossomed. And that's the really great part about it is after Chris kind of stops going to conventions and just gets a job and everything and they end up living close to each other, they sort of bond over their love of animals and it settles into a real friendship. And that part is really touching and beautiful. And I really liked reading That's about wonderful. that. Yeah. So it's, it's an odd book, but it's a good book and I'm glad I read it. And I would say if you're at all interested in DeForest Kelly as a person, or what fandom was like, sort of a first-hand account of original Trek fandom from the point of view of someone who was involved intimately in it. It's really pretty good for that. There's a couple parts that just made me laugh, like at one point, uh, when she's talking about Kelly and she refers to him as like, you know, he's always been, he was always very slim. And of course, toward when he got sick, he got skeletal, which was very hard. But she was saying, oh, you know, he, he's always been so slender, all six feet of him. And I was like, he's not six feet tall. He's never been six <laughs> feet tall. He was never more. 
he might have been Bill's height, but he was never six feet tall. I think, Chris, I think your imagination is getting ahead of you there. (laughs) So, um, so there is another actual biography of Kelly and it's called From Sawdust to Stardust, the biography of DeForest Kelly, Star Trek's Dr. McCoy. And it's $16 on Kindle and I don't have the money for it right now, but. Right. um, Who wrote it? uh, Someone named Terry Lee Ryu. And Brew is spelled R-I-O-U-X. I don't know who that person is. Um, they seem to have written a couple other biographies. And this was published in 2005. That, wow, you have, um, you have done your reading homework and <laughs> brought us a couple of very astonishing book reports. Yeah. So good work. Yeah, it was, it was really, I, you know, I have to say this, this book, I couldn't put it down. I actually stayed up really late a couple of nights reading it because I wanted to see what was going to happen, you know, where it was going to go. And, and at the end, and I really did not expect it to end the way it did. Um, and I was paying attention for parts about Bill. Bill does not pop up in the book very much, except that it is mentioned that he did visit Kelly in the hospital when he was sick. And, um, you know, came and, and was with him. Uh, but uh, I can't find it. But there is a part where um, Kelly's talking about how hard it is when you're dying, when you're clearly dying, like you're dying and you know it and there's no doubt about it. You're never going home. You know you're going to be dead in like six months or something. Um, what happens when people come to visit you, right? And with some people, they are okay with it and they're okay acknowledging it and kind of talking about it or just realizing that you're not going to have forever. And and Kelly specifically says about Bill, he will not talk about death. You cannot raise the subject with him. It is absolutely off limits. So I got the feeling that when Bill was visiting him, it was very much pretending like, yeah, when you get over this, we're going to go do some fun stuff. And, you know, because he just can't. And I think we know that, right? Like he's just not able to Well, he said his now ex-father-in-law, but Elizabeth's father, uh, is older than he is. And at one point, Bill told this, not exactly story, but said, you know, he, he wanted to know what it's like to know you're facing the end because I think you know they knew the father was going yeah and uh that had to be a huge step for Bill to even ask him Mm -hmm. I'm sure um here let me I finally found the part in the book so this is where it is this is Kelly um saying uh call Bill's secretary and and ask if Bill can come visit me so um Chris calls the secretary and says would you have Bill call me back when he gets a chance um and DeForest is here and then the secretary says, uh, well, why is D in the hospital? And he says, oh, I've been fighting this cancer thing for over a year now. And this was news to her. So Kelly mm-hmm. hadn't told anybody that he was that sick. He didn't tell yeah. Bill. He didn't tell any of his co-stars. He didn't tell hardly any of his friends. And uh, he says, if Bill knew, maybe he thought that the fewer people who knew about it, the better the chances it would remain a secret. And Kelly says, perhaps, but Bill is strange. He can't talk about cancer or death or dying. And I thought that phrasing was really interesting. He can't talk about it. Well, he won't. He just can't. Wow. So it made me sad. It was it was, yeah. it was a sad book. And uh, it made me feel good about Kelly as a person. Sure. Uh, but I, I just felt really bad that, you know, it, it didn't feel bad for him. Like he had a great life. He had a loving relationship with his wife. He did have people there to take care of him at the end. But it made me really pissed off about healthcare in America, actually, oh, <laughs> is what God. it was. I was like, yeah. really? This is the way it has to be, that you have to be in this fucking hospital, 
you know, granted, it's nice and there are nurses to take care of you, but you know you're going to die. Why can't you be at home? Why, why can't that be the way that you go? And that was something that came across really clearly in the book is that he wanted to be at home, but he couldn't because there was no way to, to manage people being there 24-7 to take care of him and to, to make sure that he was getting the correct palliative care. He had to be in this hospital and have everything brought into him and, you know, be wheeled in to see his wife or have her be wheeled in to see him because she couldn't walk because she'd broken her leg and all that. And it just sounded like, man, that's no way to have that your life be over. <laughs> um, Well, maybe they didn't have it back then, but now they do have home hospice. Yeah. Um, and I, I know a, a woman, kind of a relative in, in our extended family, who had home hospice. Yeah. And uh, I, I believe it worked out quite well for her because she was at home. All her friends could come by. She was in an environment surrounded by the people she loved. And mm-hmm. the things were all set up, you know, the way she had always had the house. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's what made me more mad and sad than anything else was that Mm -hmm. this is the way it has to be. So anyhow, uh, yes, I guess can recommend. I would put that in the can recommend column. Okay. Yes. Okay. So a very long show. We're going to wrap it up now. Uh, We're going to remind you once again, May 15th, Impulse Watch Party. We will be posting the information. It'll be on on Facebook and Twitter. It will be hosted on the 27.xyz platform. I have an account there. It's under my name, Lena Taylor. And I'll be putting the the link up so that we can all join in and have a good time watching Bill be insane in Impulse. It'll be super fun. It will be fun. Um, This is a BYO party. Yes. So, you know, whatever your um, junk of preference is, (laughs) be all set up with that. Yeah. And we'll have a wonderful time. We will. Maybe make some popcorn. I was thinking popcorn might be appropriate for the uh, scene in the uh, amusement park or the zoo or wherever they are. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Where the the one with the balloon should be ground up into dog meat. That's right. Yes. The balloon lady. Definitely. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening and and hanging with us on the Facebooks and the Twitters and all the rest of it. Uh, Hope you're all safe and well. Take care of yourself. And uh, we'll see you soon with the watch party and then with another show. And uh, don't forget, live long and... And hot luck. Bye. Bye.